For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Would you pray with me? Our Father, I, uh, I am aware this morning of my weakness, the weakness of my heart to love you and trust you, the weakness of my words. God, each of us needs you this morning. We do not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your words are what sustain our spiritual life. Your words are what open our eyes. Your words are what rejoice our hearts. Your words are what we need. And so I pray, Father, that you would, in this time, come by your Spirit and speak that you would be the one who speaks and that each of us would receive the word that we need to love and follow you. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're concluding this morning a three-week series on this chapter, Hebrews 12, this chapter in which the writer of this letter wants to encourage Christians who are tempted to give in to weariness rather than persevere in the Christian life and he, in this chapter, pictures that life, the life of following Jesus, as a race. You'll remember verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Christian life is a race, not a sprint, but a marathon. Everyone who endures who follows Jesus to the end, who trusts God's promises and obey his commands, 
will receive the prize. They will enter into eternal life, eternal joy. And this chapter is in our Bibles to help us, when weary, to endure. Every race requires endurance, and this one most of all. Now, I mentioned two weeks ago that when I was in high school, a million years ago, I ran on the cross-country team. And, and near our house, near my house, near my high school, there was a, a wonderful cross-country track. It was where a lot of our big invitational meets were. It was where the Illinois State meet happened. And one of the things that was so great about this course is that it took place, most of it was in this big open field. And so if you positioned yourself in the middle, you could see basically the whole race happening and you could move from place to place to encourage the runners as they went by. So you could kind of place yourself by the, the one mile marker. And, and as, as your team goes by, you encourage them. You say, come on, you're, you're, you're only two miles to go. You've got this. Catch this guy. Come on. And then they take off running and you just walk across the field and you catch them coming the back way around and you say, you're more than halfway there. Accelerate around this turn. Come on, come on. And it was an incredibly encouraging place to run. It, you, you were always being cheered and affirmed. The race of faith can be a very different experience. Because while there will always be very encouraging voices, there will also be voices along the course telling you to quit. Voices uh, from the culture telling you what you believe is so narrow and hateful and it's hurting people. Why don't you just stop that? Why don't you just give up on that? Maybe voices from your family saying, don't be such an extremist. It's good to have beliefs, but it's, it's dangerous to make those beliefs so central to your life. Maybe the voice of your own fatigue saying, it's, this is so hard. Wouldn't it be easier just to, to give in to temptation, just to, just to quit the race altogether? The great danger is that those voices will so work their way into our hearts that our run can become a walk. Not giving up, but just taking it easy, and then our walk can become a rest just taking a break for a while, and pretty soon you're out of the race altogether. We need the encouragement of this wonderful chapter of Scripture. When we're tempted to think, I can't keep doing this, we hear the voices of those witnesses who have finished their race saying, it's worth it. God is faithful. Keep going. When we feel our own weakness, we remember that our strength doesn't come from us. It comes from Jesus, and as we look to him, he perfects our faith. When we think, if I were on the right path, I think it would be easier than this. We remember what we heard last week, that hard times are an evidence of God's love for us because he uses them to train us in holiness. Hebrews 12 has had one encouragement after another to keep running, all building up to this passage which we just read. In, in fact, the whole book of Hebrews has been building up to this passage. If we really get what the writer of this letter is saying here, every Christian will leave today strengthened to run the race today and this week and for the rest of this year and for the rest of our lives. There is strength here for you. God gives us in this passage three things, a window, a warning, and a call to worship. A window, a warning, and a call to worship. First, a window to see what we have through faith in Jesus. A window connects you to a reality outside your present experience. You've, you've maybe had the experience of, 
of working uh, at an office, working in a, a workstation, something that's on the inside of the building. There are no windows around you and you, you just have your head down, you're working, you get up to take a little break, you pass by a window and you, you say, I didn't know it was snowing. There's this whole world outside that you're disconnected from because you don't have a window. The writer here wants to give us a window into an unseen spiritual reality. It's reality. It's as real as this pulpit, this room, but it's unseen. He wants us to see what every Christian has right now through faith in Jesus. And the window is found in, in verses 22 to 24, but before we get there, the writer wants to contrast what we have with something else. He wants to highlight the goodness and the beauty of our spiritual reality by contrasting it with another spiritual reality. And the contrast here isn't bad versus good, but good versus best. He, he contrasts two ways to encounter God, a way God's people encountered him in the past and a way we who believe in Jesus encounter him now. The way God's people encountered him in the past is found in verses 18 to 21. Look there. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. What's he describing here? What, what encounter with God is this? It's Mount Sinai. It's the giving of the law. God had rescued his people, remember, out of Egypt. He had led them through the desert. He had gathered them to himself at Mount Sinai to make a covenant with them, to say to them, I've saved you from myself, and if you will live according to my law, you will be my treasured possession. God came to speak to his people, and the holiness of his presence was so overwhelming that nature itself seemed to be almost tearing apart. There was fire and smoke and darkness and thunder and lightning, the sound of a trumpet, and the people were afraid. This, this is what it says in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. When, when God's people encountered him at Sinai, they saw his presence and they heard his voice. They did not say, you know, this is lovely. I think I could listen to God all day. They said, we can't bear this. Moses, tell God to stop. He is too much for us. As our passage in Hebrews refers to this in verse, 20, or in, yeah, in verse 19 where it says, the words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They didn't want to hear from God directly. They wanted Moses to act as mediator, to go between them and God. They wanted some space from God, some distance, and with good reason. Our passage says in verse 20 that they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. God's presence was so holy that not even an animal could approach him without being put to death. God's people encountered him at Sinai, and what they learned was fear and distance. God is dangerous. 
He's terrifying. To draw near to him without a mediator means death. Moses, who was the mediator, he was the only one who could approach God, and even he said in verse 21, I tremble with fear. The encounter with God at Sinai was marked by fear and distance, and that continued to mark God's relationship with his people through the time of the law. They had a deep sense of God's holiness, his unapproachability. Even, even when God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle, in the tent, the people couldn't come too close. That the, the innermost part, the holy of holies, where God's presence dwelt, the people couldn't come there. Only a mediator could come, the high priest, only one time a year, the Day of Atonement, and only bringing blood for his own sins and the sins of the people. The law and the priesthood and all the sacrifices emphasized over and over, year after year, God is holy. Sin cannot be where he is. Our sins require sacrifice for forgiveness. We need a mediator to take the blood in, fear and distance. And that wasn't a bad way to encounter God. Humanity needed to learn what kind of God he was, what kind of God made the world, what kind of God made us. He's infinitely pure, perfectly just, inconceivably great. He's a God we have to take seriously. What God's people had then was good, but what Christians have is better. Look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We've come to a different mountain, not a, not a mountain on earth, a mountain in heaven. And where Sinai was marked by distance, Zion is marked by nearness. You have come to the city of the living God, the, the place where God dwells among his people. And where God's presence on Sinai was marked by fire and smoke and thunder, his presence here is marked by joy. The writer says we've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. The, the presence of God is a festival it's a party, it's a celebration. And it's not just for the angels, verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Who are they? It's not the angels, he's just talked about them. Who are they? Who, who are enrolled in heaven? There's a place in Luke's gospel where Jesus has sent his disciples out to, to preach the kingdom of God and to, and to heal, and they come back just overflowing with joy. They say to him, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says to them, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Who are those who are enrolled in heaven, whose names are written there? It's Jesus' disciples. It's us. So what does it mean to have your names written in heaven, to be, to be the firstborn enrolled in heaven? It means that you belong. You're a citizen. No one can ever say to you, you don't belong here, you need to leave. Your name is on the list. Sinai was marked by fear. Zion is marked by assurance. If you trust in Jesus, you are enrolled. 
Your name is written forever, and that makes you what he calls the firstborn. In the culture of the time, to be the firstborn in a family is to be the heir, to, to inherit the, the lion's share of the inheritance. To be a Christian is to know, not just that your name is written in heaven, it's to know that you are the heir of God. You will inherit the new creation. You will inherit eternal life. All things are yours. And that's not all you've come to. Look at verse 23. Further on, he says, you've come to God, the judge of all. Now that might not sound like such good news. After all, each of us is aware that we have sinned. We have fallen short of God's standard. How could it be good news to know that we've come before a judge? Because this judge has already handed down the sentence over our lives. Read on. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now we're going to need to do a little thinking here to understand that phrase. Now, at the very least, we can see right away that he must mean different things by righteous and perfect. Otherwise, what he's saying is the righteous made righteous or the perfect made perfect, which is nonsense. And we can see that this means that it's possible to be righteous without being perfect because there are, these are the spirits of people who were righteous and then were made perfect. Are you tracking with me? So this, this is a wonderful truth. Everyone who trusts in Jesus at the moment they trust in Jesus is declared righteous in the sight of God. In practice, they are unrighteous, guilty. We have all sinned in many ways. We deserve the judgment of God, but when we trust in Jesus, God counts us as righteous in him. We are guilty, but God declares us not guilty. We are unrighteous, but God declares us righteous, and then he begins to make us perfect, a work that is not complete until we die or Jesus returns. Right now there are, in the presence of God, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, declared righteous by faith, made perfect by God. And if you have trusted in Jesus, you are and will be among them. You are righteous by faith in Jesus, and you have nothing to fear from God, the judge of all. He has already pronounced his verdict over you, not guilty. Now, how can that be? How can that holy God of Sinai pronounce sinners righteous? Because of what we read next in verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So the, the old covenant, the covenant made at Sinai, it could not make us righteous, and it could not make us perfect. Now, under the old covenant, sin could be forgiven. God had made a way for that. Because, because of God's holiness, sin deserves death, but God gave the whole sacrificial system so that when you sin, you could bring an animal, and God would accept the life of the animal in the place of yours, and you would go free. But there was always more sin. And so there always needed to be more sacrifices, and no one could try to keep up for long without realizing, I need more than this. There aren't enough bulls and goats in all the world for the things that I do wrong. Isn't there some sacrifice that can deal with all my sins forever? Isn't there some way to not just forgive my sins, but actually change my heart so I, I don't do this anymore? Enter Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The writer talks about this new covenant in chapter 10, verse 15 of this book. 
He says, and he quotes the prophet Jeremiah, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant, this is the new covenant, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. In this new covenant that Jesus makes, the law isn't just given to us on tablets of stone or in a book, it's written on our hearts and on our minds. God actually changes our hearts so we sin less and less and love him more and more. And in this new covenant, God forgets all our sins, complete, permanent forgiveness. How did he do it? He tells us back in 1224, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus made this new covenant by his blood. He offered himself as a sacrifice. His death is enough to pay for all our sins forever. Because he died for all our guilt, we can be counted righteous in him. We can receive new hearts and be changed, made perfect. He says that this blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And we looked recently at Abel, who was murdered by his brother and whose blood cried out for vengeance. Jesus' blood speaks a better word, forgiveness, assurance, welcome, Moses was a mediator at Sinai. He spoke to the people for God, but Moses couldn't bring them up the mountain to God's presence. The high priest was a mediator. He could bring the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, but he couldn't bring the people in too. Jesus brings us all the way in. The message of Sinai was, sinner, stay back. The message of Zion is, sinner, draw near. Sinner, come home. All this is yours if you trust in Jesus. Do you see it? The, the writer knows we can forget and get distracted, so he has brought us to a window and he has said, look at all that's yours. Your name is written in heaven. You belong in the city where God dwells and every day is a festival. In Christ, you are righteous and you will be perfect. All your sin has been carried away by Jesus. You Christian, right now, are loved, accepted, approved, embraced. But you can only claim that as your own if you're running the race. Which is why this window is followed immediately by, secondly, a warning. A warning not to turn from God's voice. Look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. What the writer knows and what, what we need to take seriously is that it's possible for a person to profess faith in Christ, to be baptized, join a local church, and then at some point decide to stop listening to God. Some earthly pursuit or pleasure or possession becomes more compelling than this heavenly reality the writer has just been putting before our eyes. Some, some other voice begins to hold more sway in their lives than the voice of God. It may be the voice of a culture that prizes self-fulfillment and tells them they have a right to do what makes them happy even if God forbids it. 
It may be the voice of a, a work mentor who tells them, if you want to get ahead here, you're going to have to cut some corners. You're going to have to get rid of those ethics. You're going to have to make this your top priority. It may be the voice of a parent or a political movement or a news outlet or a group of friends, but only one voice can have our heart's allegiance. The writer wants it to be God's. He says, do not refuse him who is speaking. God is speaking. He's spoken thunder at Sinai. He speaks in mercy by the blood of Jesus. He speaks through this book. Don't refuse him. Look at who he is in holiness. Look at what he's done in love. Don't turn from him. We need to be watchful of our own hearts in this. If you look closely at verse 25, the command isn't, do not refuse him. The command is, see that you do not refuse him. Take care that you don't refuse him. Watch yourself that you don't refuse him. So what are we watching for? Well, that, that same verb, that same command, appears earlier in this book in chapter 3, verse 12. This is what he says. He says, take care, it's the same word, see, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by this deceitfulness of sin. He says that what we need to watch for, what can lead us to fall away from God, to refuse him, is unbelief and sin. Now, all of us will experience the temptation to unbelief and sin. All of us will give in at times to the temptation to unbelief and sin. But we must not let them take root in our hearts and grow hard. Is there anything in your life which you know shouldn't be there and you are letting go unaddressed? God is calling you to turn from it and to return to him. He says that if sin goes unaddressed, it can lead us to fall away from God. Now, does that mean that genuine Christians can lose their salvation, have their names, which are written in heaven, erased from there? No. Because the next verse in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 14 says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold firm our original confidence to the end. So we have come to share in Christ if we persevere. If we don't persevere, we haven't come to share in Christ. Remember, in this new covenant, he changes our hearts. Our hearts will follow after him. The sign of genuine faith is that you stick with Jesus to the end. You continue to trust and obey until you die or he returns. And so the writer is warning them, don't turn away from God's voice. Don't refuse him who is speaking. The people of Israel refused him. Do you remember what happened the first time they came to the boundary of the promised land? God had met them at Sinai, and he had said, I'm giving you a land. It's, I'm going I'm to give it to you. I'm going to make it your possession. Go in and take possession of what I'm giving you. And they came to the border of the land, and they sent 12 spies in. And 10 of those spies came back, and they said, the cities are too strong. The people are too big. We cannot do the thing that God has called us to do. And the people listened to their voice, not the voice of God. They refused him who was speaking. They turned back, and God sent them into the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation died off. And the writer of this letter is saying, turning from God's voice will be even more consequential for us. Verse 25, 
See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. The writer quotes the prophet Haggai, who predicted a great shaking to come, a shaking of the heavens and the earth, which only unshakable things will survive. What's he talking about? He's talking about the final judgment, the return of Christ. Everything will be shaken, and only the things that belong to Christ's kingdom will remain. Those who belong to his kingdom, those whose names are written there, will inherit the earth, and those who are not of his kingdom will go into outer darkness. No escape. I hope you're feeling the weight of this. The writer wants us to see that it's possible to have wonderful assurance of our acceptance with God and our future with him. We can know our names are written in heaven, that through the blood of Jesus we are forgiven, righteous, and welcome in the presence of God. But that assurance is not for those who refuse his voice. Do not decide that you know better than God what is reasonable to believe and what is realistic to obey. This assurance belongs to those who imperfectly but genuinely have given their hearts allegiance to the voice of God. They believe what he says even when people laugh. They do what he says even when it's costly. Crossway, let us not refuse him who is speaking. What should we do instead? Following the warning, we have finally a call to worship. Look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Seeing all that God has provided for us through Jesus, we should not turn away and turn our back on him. We should worship with gratitude. If our names are written in heaven, if we are righteous in God's sight, if we belong to his kingdom, it's not because we deserve it. It's because he loves us. It's all grace. What does he say in verse 28? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom, not achieving. It's all a gift. Even the grace to endure comes from him. When we're weary, we don't look to ourselves, we look to Jesus. If we are following Jesus, we should feel no pride about it at all. God has done it. God has granted us faith. God has brought us this far. No, the right response is gratitude. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful that when the judgment comes, we will pass through into the presence of God. Let us be grateful. How appropriate for the week of Thanksgiving. The writer says that without gratitude, we cannot please God. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. We can't offer to God acceptable worship if we're not marked by gratitude, if we're not amazed at what he has given us in light of what we deserve. 
But it's not just gratitude we need, he says, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The God who has brought us to himself, the God who gave his son's life for us, is still the God of Sinai. He's holy with earth-shaking holiness. He's a consuming fire. And when we hold these two things together, gratitude and awe, they feed one another. The more aware we are of the holiness of God, the purity of God, the justice of God, the more grateful we will be that he has spared us all of his wrath and spent it on his son instead. And the more, in, the more grateful we are that everything that has come to us has come by grace, the more in awe we will be of a God of such holy love. And the more that we hold gratitude and awe, the more we will offer to him the worship that pleases him, not just on Sunday mornings, but our whole lives. Gratitude and awe will keep us in the race. When we're tempted to turn away from his voice, to stray from the path, we will think both, God is holy and to be feared. I will not dishonor him this way. And God has loved me and saved me. I will not grieve him this way. We won't want to break his commands and we won't want to break his heart. Where are you this morning? Are you full of gratitude, full of awe, or are you refusing his voice, going where you know he doesn't want you to go? He appeals to us today. See what belongs to those who have trusted in Jesus. More than that, see me. I am a consuming fire. I am a tender father. I am jealous for your love, and I am generous with mine. Don't let any other voice drown out my voice. Find in me a life of assurance and joy, gratitude and awe, an unshakable life. Crossway, continue gratefully worshiping the God who has brought you into his unshakable kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father, you know that we need these reminders. We need to see what Jesus has accomplished for us through his blood. We need to see that your face towards us is one of love and welcome and approval, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus has made it so. We need to see him and what he's done and to know that all of it is ours by faith. And we need you to remind us to stay in the race. And so, Father, I pray that where there is weakness and weariness this morning, that you would bring strength, that you would give grace, that we would see what you hold out to us, and that we would run for your pleasure. God, help us to live in faith in what you've done and a desire.